This morning, we are going to start a new series in the Bible. You may have heard about it if you got one of our summer 2021, uh, here's where we're headed guides. Uh, it's called Summer on the Mount, which is a play on words for a, the most, probably the most famous, the most impactful, and the most foundational sermon that Jesus preaches to his disciples. And if it's the most foundational sermon Jesus preaches, it is the most foundational sermon of all time, which makes the time that we have in this word um, somewhat daunting because there is so much to draw out of this. It it's, can be a little intimidating to try to, to explain all of it and teach all of it within the course of three months. But we're going we're gonna to do this. And the heart behind it is that the Sermon on the Mount is the foundation for what it means to live as disciples in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as it says. And as we pray through the day that we live in, the such a time as this moment that all of us find ourselves in with the cultural tension that we live in and the political divides that we live in and the, the church sometimes uh, confusion that we live in. It is so essential that we remember who we are, not according to our ideals or what we want from church, but what does Jesus say it looks like to be a, one of his disciples? He'll, he'll use this teaching to say, this is how you become a light to the world, to be separate and set apart so that, that the people of God stand out in the time and the circumstances and the boundaries of the dwellings that God has placed them in. So I find that to be an invitation that is very timely for who we are and where we are as a people. And I hope that we can use these next few months to be founded and grounded in the teachings of Christ in this way and to be cultivated for a new and fresh work that God wants to do with his people, that our good works would shine before men to his glory, and that some of us in going through this would be people who go from maybe just interested in Christ or learning and, and, and kind of discovering who Christ is to becoming a disciple. So that's what's on the menu. I hope that you can stay with us in the, in the ever-changing schedule of summer break and, and the mountains that are calling. I hope that we can, as a church, really meditate and learn what Jesus says to his disciples then and to us now about the importance of knowing what it means to belong to his kingdom and how to live in that. So this morning will serve as a bit of an introduction, and we will cover a few verses in what are called the Beatitudes or the blessings of the disciples of Christ. So that's where we're headed. Um, next week, we're actually going to have Brent Harrell share in this passage of Scripture as well. And then we'll do a third week in the Beatitudes as we continue in our journey through Summer on the Mount. So something about starting a new series that just I, I, I ask you to join me as we present our offerings to the Lord, not just in time and resources, but also, Lord, we want to hear from you during these months. These are, these are not random months in the calendar. This word will speak to us and it will come alive as your Holy Spirit makes it alive. And as he does that, I pray that we would have ears to hear because I really am convinced that there is a sea, changing, a sea change coming for God's people and the way that we are ambassadors of the gospel. So we need to prepare our hearts. We need to be ready for what God is doing in our generation and what better way than to go through the foundations of the kingdom. So let's pray for that and then we'll get right into it. God, thank you for your word. It is Always yes and amen. Your promise is always true in Christ. And you promised this morning 
You, you deliver for us, unlock these unique blessings that come to those who are called your disciples, your followers, the people that you set apart and mark that belong to you. And so God, I pray for those of us who have a relationship with you that it would be made more rich, it would be made more impactful for those around us. And I pray also for those that you've drawn into this place that they would hear the amazing plan that you have for anyone that you call to yourself and they would, they would hear as, as an invitation to follow you. Lord, we, we, we just lay before you these summer months in all of the ways that, we are, that we're seeking you and you send us in and out of the valley this summer. I pray that we would be ignited to be lights in this world, reflections of your glory, disciples that have a, a set-apart nature to them. So help us, Lord, to have ears to hear as you speak to us through your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as said, we're going to use a portion of this sermon as a way of just introduction to set the scene and to really kind of lay out where Jesus is as he calls people to himself and who those people are and then what it is that he's going to be offering them in the Call to discipleship through the Sermon on the Mount. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and he was seated. His disciples came to him. So in verse 1, we find the stage being set very clearly. Uh, it starts by saying, and seeing the multitudes. So the context of Matthew chapter 5 up until this point, we're starting to see the, the ministry of Jesus unfold. He's been anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin the earthly ministry, He's been tempted in the desert, overcoming the three temptations of Satan with the word of God. And now he is going to display the power of God in and through him, through his teachings and healings. And as is the case throughout the gospel, as Jesus shows up on the scene, there is a natural gravity towards him. There are people that just swarm to him because he is offering real healing. He's offering real soul care to the people. And where that happens, people are drawn to it, and there are multitudes that come to see him. And as one of the themes of the Bible, what you'll find very often is that when the multitudes come, and when you see the crowds of people surrounding Jesus, very often he will find a way to depart from them, get alone, and then call out from the crowd disciples. And that's worth pointing out to us this morning as we journey our way through this passage of Scripture that there is within every crowd seeking Jesus and seeking the benefits of the Lord, a mixed bag. There are those within the crowd that are there for reasons that are not simply to follow him and to know him and to be called one of his disciples. So he takes the crowd and he departs into the mountain and he calls the disciples who follow him. And so we listen to the audience now in that, uh, in that observation of what this verse presents to us, that away from the multitudes, he calls the disciples. And you've already heard in my prayer that some of you this morning are disciples of Christ. You've made an acknowledgement of Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and you desire to hear his word as the authority of your life, and others of you are not. It's just the reality of a crowd this size. And the message this morning is, in fact, for disciples, but I love the fact that it's on a mountain, that Jesus was born in a manger, and he brings his message to the mountain. It, it shows the nature of our God that, as it says in Acts chapter 7, does not dwell in temples made by human hands. But he comes to the people lowly. And he comes initially outside of a palace, which was shocking to think of the king of the world, the Christ that came to save, being born amongst the animals to the, the poor. And then he comes not only in a manger, but he also comes to the mountain, not to the temple. 
So may you be encouraged this morning that our God meets us, that he calls us to a place that is accessible. And he calls us this morning as disciples to listen to the authority of his word and to what it means to be blessed. That will be the what of the offering this morning. But he does it within earshot of anyone who can hear. And the disciples will come, and I, I pray that the disciples have ears to hear, and I pray that those who are within earshot to hear this morning will listen to this message as an invitation to become one. That the offer is for those of us who know Christ to be more blessed in knowing him, and for those of us who don't know him to hear the invitation, to have a blessed life. What does that mean? And that's what we'll discuss. Because it says, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... He's going to get into a teaching as he has drawn his disciples to himself. Notice it says that when he was seated, his disciples came to him. That was the tradition of the day, by the way, is that the rabbi in these moments would sit and the people would stand. Maybe we should do that <laughs> to reverse the order. It, maybe it would be a way to just help you stay attentive and me to be someone who could, you know, have the energy to talk longer. And you guys are like, no, we're good as is. <laughs> but you get the picture. Christ sitting. As teacher, as rabbi, as disciples come to him, he now opens his mouth. An interesting, uh, an interesting picture of how he is teaching, that there are times that he teaches through the power and the display of miracles. There's times that he's teaching through the power and display of his own life. And now he teaches with the authority to open his mouth and reveal the will of God. And as he is going to offer what is often called the Beatitudes or the blessings of his kingdom, we notice another reason to lay out an introduction of the mountain. Because there is a biblical theme in the mountain when it comes to the revelation of the will of God for the people of God. And we find now a fuller picture of a previous mountain scene that we had in the Old Testament. Remember the person of Moses, who was the, he was the leader of God's people. He was the deliverer of God's commands. And how did he get them? He came to find a revelation of God on top of Mount Sinai where he found the law of God through that revelation that he would deliver to the people. And now this is one of those ways that Jesus will be the greater picture of a theme that was offered to us in the Old Testament. As Moses was a picture of, of uh, the leader coming to the mountain to get the revelation of the will of God for his people, we now have the greater Moses, the one that Moses prophesied would come after him, who now ascends to a mountain to reveal not just the commandments, but now the blessings, the fuller law of God, the deeper revelation of the heart of God for his people. And that is what we find for us as disciples that we now have what is often called the constitution of the kingdom. And I'm so grateful for the ways that totally apart from my own design and planning where we are in the scripture, that we align sometimes with the cultural calendar that we live in. And as you heard through the prayer of Noah, we find ourselves Memorial Day weekend, oftentimes the kickoff to summer. And it's a, in memory of those who have died, who have gone before us to protect, to withhold, and to establish the constitution that we stand on. And so it's with that picture that we find ourselves in a version of that in a much more uh, real way, which is the constitution of the kingdom of God. And there is one that goes before us who dies to give it to us that we now stand in memory of this morning and in relationship to, as he says, here's what it means to live in my kingdom. So just as we have soldiers who have gone before us to say, here's what it means to live in America with your freedoms and your rights and the joy and the pursuit of, of life, liberty, and happiness, now we have Jesus saying, here is what my constitution says. And that's what we're going to examine today. So 
for the purposes of this morning, I'd like to read all of the Beatitudes, so verses 3 through 10, and then we're really going to just look at the first two, giving ourselves two more weeks to study the rest of them. It says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I read all of these because as we look at this as marks of a disciple, we realize that these are not given to us like a buffet table. And you can choose or you can ask God to bless you according to which spiritual gift he's given you to walk in. And some of you will walk in meekness and some of you will be peacemakers and some of you will go through persecution. The idea is that these come to us as a complete package that is total for the life of those who follow Christ to walk in. And it is not that he gives some to one and some to the others, but he takes us through a journey with him in maturing us in our trust of him that will take us through the whole gamut. Because in the end, it says that Jesus promises disciples, in this world, you'll have much trouble. They hated me. They're also going to hate you. But don't worry, I've overcome. There's an encouragement for all of us to realize you live in a fallen world and as a disciple of Christ, as you grow in your maturity and as you grow in your closeness to him, you will grow in your relationship to the world that he had, which the world despised him, rejected him, hated him, and the student's not greater than the master. So we can't avoid the end of the blessing as those who are persecuted can somehow rejoice. But what we do is we start where it starts. And many people read this as a, a progression that happens almost like a ladder. And you read that we rejoice in persecution, you think, I can't do that. It's like, not yet. But you can start where he starts. You can start with the very first blessing, which is to be poor in spirit. And until you're poor in spirit, it's unlikely that you'll ever experience any of the other blessings. Without being poor in spirit, it will be very difficult for you to mourn to the place of comfort. It will be difficult for you to be meek in the circumstances that God gives you to exercise gentleness and meekness to his glory, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. It all starts with this primary desire that we are supposed to have as disciples of Christ to be poor in spirit. And in our poverty of spirit, it says throughout all of these, all, each one of these beatitudes, it says, you will be blessed. Moses came and said, thou shall not. And Jesus now, the deeper revelation of the will of God for his people is thou shall be blessed. But how do we do that? And what does that mean? I was having uh, dinner with my family and you know, we're, we're dinner out and, and we are a collective of various ages that are challenging from seven and under. And so I, I sometimes feel like people are watching us like they're at the zoo, like, wow, look at that. That's <laughs> hard. And someone came up to us as they were leaving and said, Hey, man, you're doing a great job. May God bless you. And I thought, absolutely. As I consider the blessings of God, he is absolutely giving me the desire for him to be my everything because as a father, I feel very impoverished. 
Do we often think of when someone says, God bless you, do, do, do our minds go to the Beatitudes? Or sometimes we think, God bless you, and you're thinking, I hope so. I've been waiting, and I'm hoping. Because there's a difference between the blessings of the Beatitudes and the nature of them that seems so counter, counterintuitive to us. Blessed, rejoice in persecution to what the world says would be the pursuit of happiness. And yet, the best way we can understand the blessings of God is to consider our joy in him. It's, it's similar to happiness, but it's different in this. The pursuit of happiness is circumstantial and temporary. It comes with good grades and it leaves with bad ones. The stock market goes up and then it goes down. The relationship is solid and then it's, and then it's not. But this is all things that happen in the present moment as a way to surround your life in the blessings of God that you would be content and satisfied in him. And that, whether you are a current disciple or whether you're here as an examiner of what we believe, there is something inside every single one of us that longs for the answers to the question of how to be blessed. How do I maintain satisfaction for life? Because I feel like the stock market. It goes up and it goes down. And the pursuit of happiness sometimes is going well and sometimes going very difficult. And as we find ourselves in relation to the cultural calendar, the, it's not only Memorial Day, but many of you may know or you may not that it's also the month of May is mental health awareness, which is something that we are being more and more aware of because there's more and more reason to try to understand mental health. We live in a world and in a culture and a country in the pursuit of happiness that seems to be going in the opposite direction. And so in my awareness of mental health awareness, it came in the form of a banner ad. So I took the, uh, the, I took the interwebs bait and I was like, well, what is it? Make me aware. What's going on in our culture? How are we doing in our pursuit of content, satisfaction, and joy? And so I just share with you what I discovered recently as the current state of the pursuit of happiness. And in, in sharing this, of course, speaking to an audience that lives in the culture, I'm sharing this with you in real time, many of you, because you come with heavy hearts, you come with racing minds, and you come with a, a need to understand your own state of mental awareness. But as we consider the data, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like we're going in the right direction. It says that 70% 70 70 of youth in the juvenile justice system have been diagnosed with a mental illness something broken in the minds of our young people, and we're identifying it as a problem in their minds, but it's giving them the school of hard knocks. They're, they're, they're landing in very difficult cir circumstances. As we consider Memorial's th Memorial Day, and we consider and we clap and we pray for those who have gone before us, we realize that 41% of veterans have been diagnosed with a mental illness or substance abuse problem. And again, real time, we, 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 we care for you. We're glad that you're here to hear that, that this is not something that is, is lost on the sight of God. But it does give us a measurement as to, to where we're going. What's our direction? Most troubling stat, if you've paid attention at all during the last year and a half, you know this is growing. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among, among people aged 10 through 34. We live in a time where there is an absolute pandemic of loneliness and depression, and there does not seem to be a way out. So what do we do? And how are we, disciples of Christ, set apart? How are we marked not by doom and gloom and pessimism and confusion and depression, but we're marked by what Jesus says, in my kingdom, there is a marking of blessing. 
to be totally content in the will of God for your life, to somehow come here this morning with an overflow of thanksgiving and joy, to leave here with the satisfaction that peace can dwell in your heart and that in the world of darkness that is waiting on people's minds and hearts, there is a people of God that is rising up as lights in the dark because they look different because they represent not just the pursuit of happiness, but they represent the present state of blessing. But how? Well, Jesus says it starts step one on the staircase. That in some ways we, we picture a staircase going up, but it's almost like this is a staircase coming down. The heart of God to humanity. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven joy and satisfaction and blessing when we understand what it means to have poverty of spirit. Okay, what does that mean, Jesus? Let me give you some preacher definitions to help us understand where we're going with our attempt to listen to the teachings of Christ and cultivate it in our church, in our families, in our heart. To be poor in spirit, to be devoid of spiritual arrogance. Meaning we come here and we think we're pretty good on our own. In fact, I'm doing pretty well internally. And I come here representing a lot of good stuff about me. And God receives my praise because in some ways, he's happy I'm here. It's like, well, I've been waiting for you, man. This church was going down and then you showed up. It's like, wow, I'm glad I'm here. Uh, maybe a, a better definition that cuts a little bit harder to us. And I hope we can hear it. And I don't think it was a mistake that Scott Cunningham led us in the song that he wrote, specifically, maybe just for us as a church, because I'm, I'm singing that and I'm thinking, Lord, this is the heart cry of someone who is impoverished without you, spiritually. Here's the, here's the definition, total dependence on God. Poor in spirit, I, I have nothing without you. So what does Scott sing to us? Surround me with your love and the treasures of your peace. In the ordinary, the stationary, in the sanctuary, in, in every aspect of my life, surround me with your love, God. And that should cut to the heart because how are we doing with that? What does it look like for us to come here and to not just make it a, an hour dedication that our family commits to going to church because it's good for the health of our children and it's good for the health of my marriage and then I go about and hopefully I walk in, in, in a way that God will bless me out the door. But we come here once again to say, God, if I don't have you, I have nothing. Because your word says that you're the vine and I'm the branch and apart from you, I can, I can do nothing. So let's try to understand how we don't just read this, but how we cultivate it in our hearts. Let me share with you a tension that is brought up in Andrew Murray's book on humility, which is maybe another way for us to understand poor in spirit. He says this, humility is the place of entire dependence on God. And it is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. He could be preaching about the Sermon on the Mount right now. To be lowly, to be poor in spirit, to be totally dependent on God, to have humility before him is the root virtue that will unlock all of the others. It is the gateway virtue to actually know that you need God. But then he says, as a contrast, and so pride, or the loss of humility, 
is the root of every sin and evil. So now we have a tension. Where Jesus says, be poor in spirit, he is calling you to a spiritual discipline, a spiritual life in him. And wherever there is a spiritual discipline or a spiritual growth in you, there is a temptation for a fleshly weakness. We see it in prayer. Jesus calls his disciples, says, pray with me. My hours come, pray with me. And what do they do? They fall asleep. It's like you guys are sleeping. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And he says to us, poor in spirit. Be poor in spirit so I can bless you, so I can give you what you need, so you open your hands and I can fill them. And we're sleeping. We're watching all the other ways that we could be enriched by the world. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And where the flesh is weak and the poverty of the spirit, it's filled up with pride. The, the opposite of being dependent on God is being dependent on yourself. And it is the tension of our lives. It is the root of all sin. As we went through the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, it comes in with the offer of pride. Be dependent on yourself. Did God really say that you should not eat of that fruit? Maybe you would be actually like him and you'd be better off without him. So pride is the first sin that enters into the fall and it is the first sin that is, is rejected from our lives as we are revived in the spirit of God. So this morning I'll make, I hope, three brief observations about this tension between poverty and spirit and the pride of our heart. And in these observations, I hope that we can have in our lives a new commitment to allow God to grow in us a dependence on him. Here's my observations. Poverty of spirit. It is revealed in contrast. It's hidden in worry and it grows in grace. So we're gonna journey through portions of Matthew chapter five, six, and seven as we think about what Jesus is saying to his disciples about the blessing of being poor in our spirit. And the first thing I see as I read through this is that it is revealed in contrast. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, poverty or you know, being poor is relative, is it not? Right now, there is a poorest among us and there is a richest among us. But you shake up the bag and everything changes based off the sanctuary that you're sitting in and based off the country that you live in. So here's the example for the purposes of our church. We live a pretty blessed life in contrast to the rest of the world. So no matter the poorest person among us right now is probably doing better than most of the world. The average in household income globally, not in our country, but globally, is $10,000 a year for families of four. So that's pretty tough. And you think about what you're bringing in, you think, okay, I thought I was poor, but compared to most of the world, maybe I'm not. And in some ways, it is the contrast of our poverty in spirit that will be challenged or broken down as we wrongly make the contrast horizontally. So you may think you're poor until you look around and you realize, actually, I'm pretty rich compared to you. And the richest guy in here is like doing pretty well until you hang out in Monaco. And so when you look left to right, you have a very difficult time understanding your own wealth. And it is the same way in our spiritual life. When we judge ourselves by others, it's a hard thing to know where we're actually at. 
I got a very small picture, like tiny picture of this, this week because it was first grade graduation, Calvary Christian parents among us, you made it. Uh, our kids have graduated. It's now summer break, so I'm praying for you. Pray for me. <laughs> They're gonna be around a lot more. And on the last day of school, on, at least in first grade, each student passed out a book of letters that the class wrote for them. So they took turns writing letters for each other and in, in place of a yearbook, they gave each other letters. And so my daughter ran home and she opens her, her, her book of letters and without fail, every single letter, we read every one of them together. It said, Lua, we love you and you're the best reader in our class. It's like, oh, that's awesome. One note even said, Lua, you are the best reader in the entire world. <laughs> and I'm like, that's actually not true. <laughs> In fact, she actually proved my point in the next page because it said, you're the best reader and the 13-ist. And she goes, what's 13-ist? And I was like, oh, that's a cursive K. It says kindest. So you're actually not the best reader. <laughs> you didn't even know that word. If you're watching at a later time, Lou, I'm sorry to put you on blast, but th that's the point, is that we all look pretty good compared to one another. And we can all come to church and think, man, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. One of you is the best athlete. One of you is the best business person. One of you is the best teacher. One of you is the best neighbor. And when we look left to right, we think, I don't know, maybe I'm not that bad. Jesus actually teaches a parable to really drive this point home. It's Luke chapter 18. It's worth thinking about. Because he's warning us against a left to right comparison of each other to try to figure out where we stand in his kingdom. Luke chapter 18 Verse nine, the parable starts like this. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's called pride. That they were righteous. And those who trusted in themselves, that they thought they were righteous, what does Jesus say about them? And they despised others. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. This is the opposite of being poor in spirit. And how does he come to the place where he's justifying himself and he thinks he's righteous in himself? It's not by comparing himself to God. It's by looking to the left or looking to the right and saying, thank God I am not like that man. He's an extortioner, unjust, adulterers, or even as that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This is the danger of our position in church and our position in the culture that we can be tempted without even knowing it to have not our poor in spirit revealed in contrast, but our pride revealed in contrast because we look around and we're like, wow, I'm doing really well. I'm doing way better than that guy. That marriage is failing. That guy can't preach. These people over here don't know one Bible verse. I looked over and they were opening their eyes during prayer. It's like, how'd you know they were opening their eyes? Age old question. <laughs> And this is a problem not just of church, but of culture. So we come into the culture and we make all of these assessments about what tribe is doing well by looking left to right. Politically, this party's awesome because that party's horrible. And we do it socially with the way that we have tried to navigate the rules and the mandates and, and all of the, the, the new normal that we live in. It's like that person over there is living in fear and that person over there is killing everybody. And I'm doing well compared to them. And what has happened is inside of the church and inside the hearts and minds of disciples, 
presented before non-believers as we have become prideful people because we're better than them. But here's the reality of what we need to have poor in spirit. How do we cultivate it? Well, it's revealed in contrast, but it's not a left-to-right contrast. It is not horizontal. It has to be vertical. Because you guys are actually doing pretty well compared to others. Compared to your neighbor, you're doing great. But who are you before God? And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. I can't look at the glory of God. He beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the beginning of the cultivation of poor in spirit to realize that the God of all creation would look down on you and grant you mercy and grace because you're not worthy. So who among us, in the contrast, vertically stands with boasting, stands with anything to be proud about? Jesus says, I'll tell you who went away justified. And he uses, this is a parable, he uses very clearly these people with the reputation of their titles to break down the system and the expectation of people. That the religious elite are not poor in spirit and it doesn't matter how much they think they do for God if they come before him as a representation of their own righteousness, it says they don't leave justified. But the tax collector who is aware of his unworthiness will leave justified. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And he who exalts himself will be humbled. May that message be lived out to our culture as God opens doors for humility to love neighbors, to love political divide, to love churches across the street. He who humbles himself will be exalted to the glory of God. And I wanna share one more story of what this looks like to give us greater picture of how radical the vertical humility should be. Because it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one cried to another one and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, listen to this, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's the God we're worshiping this morning. That holy, holy, holy Father, Son, Spirit, God is the God that has called us into the sanctuary this morning. His robe fills the temple. And Isaiah the prophet, and it's worth pointing this out, lest any one of us think that we somehow can evade the humility that comes in the presence of God. Isaiah was the greatest of his generation. He was set apart to be a mouthpiece for God. He was set apart to bring the oracles of God to the people of his day, representing God's heart for his people. They called him the prophet with the silver tongue he would be used by God to present to us prophecy through his writings that would point us to some of the clearest prophecies that we have of the coming Christ. His vessel, the way that God used him, is unmatched in this sanctuary. And Isaiah, when he's presented with the holiness of God, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. 
Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the response to anyone who actually encounters the presence of God. If it happened to Isaiah, it will happen to you. And this is the beginning of being poor in spirit. Isaiah represents it. The prophet who God uses, long into his ministry now, has an encounter with the presence of God that is so real and is so rich that he cries over himself, I can't even use these lips, they're so unclean. And the people that I represent, full of unclean lips. And this is what God is calling his people to now. To have such a dependence on the reality of God in your life that you are unworthy of pride and boasting and anything in yourself that you could ever stand on as good that would be valuable to the people that God sends you to represent. When we experience God's presence, you will be marked with a poor spirit. Question, have you come close enough to God or has God come close enough to you that at your best, you are in poverty compared to him. You present all of the best things about your life. And you come so close to who he is that you realize at your best as a husband, you have not reached the excellence of how Christ loves his church. As your best as a father or mother, you have not fully laid down your life for your children. That at your best, you fall so short of the glory of God. This is the design of our gathering, that we would come in contact with this living God that Isaiah cries out for. And that as we worship him and read his word and have revelation of his love for us and his mercy for us, that we ourselves would be so undone that he can fill us, that he can use us. Second question. Have you kept a prideful distance from God that allows you to remain confident and dependent on yourself. You can't answer that question with your position at church. This is not a question of how close you sit to the sanctuary, how radically you take notes, how, how loud you sing the songs. All of that can be like clanging brass to the Lord. This is a question of if you've actually allowed the authority, the love of God, the, the power of the Spirit of God to bring you into his presence in a way that has to change you? Or are you keeping him at a safe distance? Do you listen to the word as good advice? Do you come to church as someone who's interested but not committed? Are you invited here this morning really as an observer that is waiting for the service to end and you're going to be on your way until next week, next month, next year, Christmas or Easter? Where are you positioned with God? You can tell by your poor spirit, total dependence on God. Now it says, the second observation that I, that I find is that this tension between pride and poverty is not only revealed in the contrast from horizontal to vertical, but it's also hidden in our worry. This is not a message that you will say yes to this morning. Your flesh is wrestling with this message. And the way that God calls you to present yourself as a living sacrifice, totally dependent on him, 
will, will be a cross in your life. It says, pick up your cross. That's an instrument of death where you crucify the flesh of pride. And your flesh will fight that. And it won't like that. And when you really consider these words, not just as good advice, but as the mark of someone who's actually following Christ, it should cause some worry inside of you. To be totally dependent on God, meaning like every relationship with the standard of God's love, not just your friends, but your enemies. I mean, my whole life, not just a portion of my, my tithe money and a portion of my Sundays, but, but God, you want everything? If you really listen to that message, do you sit back and say, bring it on? I don't. I hate it. I hate this message in my flesh. And yet, by faith, I believe that this is the design of God for me to actually be satisfied in him. Some of you hear the message of poverty or poor in spirit, and I hope the Spirit convicts you to, to take something that was prideful and lay it at the foot of the cross so that you can be humbled. Some of you hear the message of being poor in spirit and you say, amen, I walked in here depressed. I'm not the best. I'm probably the worst. I'm probably the poorest. I barely want to come to church. It's easy for me to be bankrupt. I have not much to offer. I'm worried about following God because why would he ever use someone like me? This is where worry is hiding pride. Blaise Pascal, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to the same end. And now there are two directions to this happiness. Look it. The cause of someone going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, in different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves, are in the pursuit of happiness. Even those who doubt and worry have some seed of pride that are preoccupying their mind with themselves. For pride in oneself, whether swaggering or groveling, can never be anything but hateful to God. Boasting is evidence that we are pleased with self. Belittling ourselves is evidence that we are preoccupied with ourself. I'm not good enough, said who? Your pride. God's going to leave me here and abandon me, said who? Your lack of faith, because you can't believe that anyone could provide for you other than yourself. Your strong will, your provisions. And so now we hear a message from Luke chapter 6, which is the appropriate message for people who are listening to the words of Christ. Because he says this in Luke chapter 6. For those who say to be poor in spirit is to be a disciple. He says in Luke chapter 6 verse 25, I say to you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? We think about total dependence and we're thinking about big things like mortgages, like the future state of our, of our children. It's like total dependence on God, your will, not mine. Jesus says, go farther, clothes, food. We think about contrast and we're wondering how our neighbors are doing. Jesus says, you want a contrast? Look at verse 26, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than any one of them? Contrast your life to the animals who have nothing. To creation that just exists by the abundance of God's common grace that causes rain and sunshine. If you're looking for a reason to trust God, look around and realize that he has cared for creation, he cares for animal, and he cares for you. And in our worry, we are doubting 
the reality that being poor in spirit would be a blessing. We're doubting the reality that trusting God with everything would actually be the best plan for our life. It is a common theme throughout people who follow God. We talk a lot about it in, in relationship to God and his people as he takes them through the wilderness out of Egypt. And what happens? Miracle after miracle after miracle. Ten plagues in Egypt. The Red Sea parted. Manna from heaven. Water from a rock. And every miracle comes with another reason to doubt God. God, did you bring us out here to die? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? At least we could have been eating there. Poverty in spirit, poor in spirit. You have to believe in the promise of the blessing. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, happy, content, and satisfied. Why? Because theirs is right now the kingdom. When you belong to God's kingdom, you belong to God's economy. You belong to God's provision. Romans chapter 8 says we are transferred from people who are fearful with representation of slaves to sin, and we transfer into the relationship with God as adopted sons and daughters where we cry out, Father. And so built into your worry, there is a hidden pride. And built into your worry, there is a hidden temptation to not be poor in spirit. But Jesus says, don't worry, why? Because I will care for you. In Luke chapter 12, he has a, another version of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's an extra verse in that for all of us to hear this morning. Don't seek what you should eat or what you should drink, for these things the nations of the world seek after. The world is not living under the worldview of being so poor in spirit and so dependent on God as creator that they get to see his miracles of provision. They're saying, in our pride, we will provide. He says everybody is worried about how to make it in life by themselves, by the dependence of the, the, the circumstances of their life. But not so with you. Do not fear, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He desires it. He wants to bring you into his kingdom. We're going to look at another moment in the, in the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah has his interaction with the presence of God, he also gets great revelation into the assurance of God that I want to share with you, that I want to live in my heart because the promise of heaven is now. And not always. We don't have our glorified bodies yet. The lion doesn't lay down with the lamb yet. Sorrow and tears have not been wiped away yet. But there is a distinct way that heaven is with us now. And it starts with the gateway is to be poor in spirit. Because look what Isaiah promises us. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the Lord, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, who inhabits heaven, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in high and holy places with whom has a contrite, and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The most radical part of heaven will be, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that we will know him just like he knows us. The most exciting reality of the coming kingdom in all of its glory is that God will dwell with his people. We will be his people and he will dwell with us. There will be no need for a son because his glory will be so bright. 
And that is available to us now because he says, I will dwell with you now as you have a humble heart. As you live with a contrite spirit, as you come to the presence of God, not simply to be enthusiastic about believing in him, but to be done, undone once again with the identity that you have in yourself, with the identity that you have in the provisions and the treasures of this world, you come into his presence, you're left undone, and he says, now I can dwell in your heart. Now you have heaven. And it's his good pleasure to give it to us. So the final thing we'll look at, the poor in spirit, this condition of our life before God, revealed in contrast, hidden in our worry, and it grows in grace. And this is where we'll end this morning by looking at the second beatitude, because it is a picture of this journey that we're on to grow in the grace of God as we go through this process from glory to glory to glory, and each wave of those glories is another way that we come undone before the Lord so he dwells in our hearts more and more and more. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we take another step towards blessing. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And oftentimes you'll read this verse and you'll think, praise God that he, that he comforts us in our mourning, the God of all comfort when we are going through sad and difficult and trying times. I talked to someone in between service and he was mourning the loss of his mother. I said, you'll be comforted. But there's a deeper mourning that happens in the spiritual sense that is not just the relation that we have to people that we're sad about or circumstances that, that make us heavy hearted. There is a mourning that comes to the realization that we have fallen short of the glory of God. There's a mourning that comes when we enter into the presence of God and we realize that his holiness is unattainable and we're also, it's also clear in the, the reflection of our, light, of our life that his, the light of his glory shines in the darkness of our hearts and it should break our heart. It, 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 it's, it's a mourning process that God says we'll, we'll find comfort in the grace of God. And so, one final glance at the life of Isaiah. Because Isaiah takes us through this process where he is broken before the Lord, undone, a man of unclean lips, by the power of the presence of God. But then it says in Isaiah chapter 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. The blessing of being poor in spirit grows by the grace of God. As we come to him in his presence and he pulls out of us all of these ways that we are unclean. And here's the promise this morning. Lest we walk with heavy hearts and just left with impoverished spirits. God will use the sin that is pointing us on a path to hell to bring us to the gates of heaven. It is the brokenness that we find in, in our own depravity that causes us in his presence to mourn, to repent, to ask for forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, the grace of God covers you. As Isaiah has his lips cleansed and now the sin is purged from his life. This morning also, gospel good news message that this all grows in the grace of God. This is not a message to where you all become monks now and you become disciplined in your impoverished spirit. 
and you reject all forms of comfort and pleasure in this life, this is a lesson that in the way that you are growing in the stature and the maturity of Christ, and he is purging you from the darkness of your heart, he is comforting you in your mourning. He's bringing you to your knees, not simply to condemn you, but to teach you to worship him so that his grace can cover you because it says in Romans chapter five, where sin abounds, where the glory of God reveals the sin of our hearts, his grace abounds more. So you come here and you know all too well the burden of your undoneness. And the gospel says, God has brought you here so that the grace of God can be known. So that you may mourn your failures, your decisions, your violation of God's perfect will for your life, your falling short of the glory of God. And you come to his presence. Maybe as an outsider this morning, you say, I can't believe I came here and I hear this message of a holy God and I, I understand that my, my life doesn't, doesn't fit the bill and I'm not worthy, but you hear this. You didn't come undone to stay undone. Your sin is not exposed to simply condemn, but it's to point you to the cross of Christ. And this is what our, our, our desire to bring glory, that our pride stirs in us and points it towards sin. Our desire is to bring glory to God, to not boast in ourselves, but now to boast in the cross because we are saved by grace. And it says in 1 Peter that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, come under the almighty hand of God. Humble yourselves before him. So hear this message. On the cross of Christ, your undone sin, your separation from the holiness of God is placed on his cross. And he who knew no sin, he enters into the temple and he never cries out, I'm undone, because he is completely holy in his own right. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He who knew no sin becomes sin so that you can be cleansed from the separation from God so that grace may abound in you, so that heaven may be yours, not by anything that you can boast in, but by the cross of Christ. And so we think of that hymn, I will not boast in anything no gift, no power, no treasure, but I will boast. I will glory. My, my emptiness will be filled by Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his life in me. He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. We come to him empty-handed and he fills us with his life. So we have two audiences that we will now, I will invite you into worship, both. Some of you come in earshot of the constitution of the kingdom. And you come with maybe a burden that you're not worthy. You've been exposed before the glory of God. May God allow this message to, to penetrate your heart, to know that you have come to the entry point, the gateway of all the blessings of God, that you have the prerequisite of a contrite heart a heart that has nothing to offer God, a life that comes with open hands to receive his free gift of life. And so you turn that into a moment of worship. If that's the prerequisite, that's for everyone. The prerequisite is not a pure heart. The prerequisite is not that you are perfectly a peacemaker or that you are perfectly meek. 
But you can come this morning with the prerequisite of the blessing that you come empty-handed before God that he would give you his life in exchange for yours. And now, disciples, we come and we worship, we say, more, God. We want more of your glory to come out of us. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. And so we lay at this, at this moment of worship, we say, God, here are the areas of my life that I'm trying to be independent and I'm prideful and I'm, I, I'm separated from you and I have them brought them close because I want them for myself. And you say, Lord, empty me once again so that you can fill me up with the blessing of the presence of God as a preview of heaven.